Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Hebrews chapter 8 is before us. Turn there if you would as we look this morning to the new covenant. Alcides Moreno. Now this guy, by every law of physics and of medicine, this guy should not He should not be alive. He was a window washer in Manhattan, and he rode those platforms with his brother Edgar to wash windows on those tall, high city buildings. They didn't actually care about the heights that much. They got used to looking down on the pavement far below where people, you know, look just like ants. They would start at the top and then they would just work their way down. And on December 7th of 2007, they were cleaning this tower, the Solo Tower in Manhattan. And they had just gotten up on top of the platform when the cables holding it in place came loose. Now the cable on the left side came loose first. His brother Edgar fell off. He fell over 470 feet. And some science geeks got together and estimated that because of the gravity, he would have been traveling at 120 miles per hour when he hit the ground. Well, needless to say, he died immediately. Then the other side of the platform came loose and Alcides, he fell next and nothing stopped his fall. It wasn't like in the movies where a flagpole or an awning or something like that stops your fall. He fell the entire 47 stories to the pavement below. And while he fell, he managed to kind of hold on to the platform, which became like a surfboard in the sky. And paramedics actually found him. That's a picture of it there that you can see on the screen. They found him in the alley below. Now, of course, they did not expect to find him alive because 50% of all people that fall four or five stories die. And if you get up to 10 or 11 stories, nearly everyone dies. And when they found him, he was still holding on tightly, you can imagine, to the controls on the scaffolding. And he even tried to stand up and talk with the paramedics. And when they took him to the hospital, he had to have 24 pints of blood and another 19 pints of plasma. He had 16 surgeries to repair 10 broken bones. He had collapsed lungs, damaged kidneys, and blood clots in the brain. 18 days after the accident, he woke up for the very first time since the accident and he said to his wife, what did I do? Yet somehow, Alcides Moreno, the man who fell from the sky, he survived and you can see him there. And the only thing that the doctors could conclude was that it was a clear act of God. God willed for him to live. When the book of Hebrews was written, the nation of Israel was in a free fall. The Roman government 
controlled them. Gentiles ruled over the people of God and over the holy city of God. The law had been done away with, but the Hebrew traditions continued. The Levitical priesthood had come to an end, but the ceremonies were still going on, weren't they? God's people had rejected their Messiah. And the ones that had turned to Christ for salvation were actually thinking about turning back to the safety of the Jewish people. The temple would soon burn, but the nation would someday somehow survive. Thousands of years would come and go, but the nation would rise again. They would be a people again because God willed it to be so. And so there would be a need for a better covenant, a new covenant for God's people. This is where Hebrews chapter 8 takes us, starting in verse 3. Follow with me if you would. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Now remember that the date is around 65 or 66 AD and Jewish priests were still presenting offerings in Herod's temple. The tabernacle and the temple of God on earth pointed to the temple of God in heaven. And all that the author is saying is that the priesthood of Jesus was not on earth. A high priest of Israel is to both offer both gifts and sacrifices. Jesus could have functioned as a priest on earth after the order of Melchizedek. He could have done that, but not in the tabernacle here on earth, because why? He was not, we've already seen from Hebrews, he was not a son of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. So for Jesus, his priestly ministry of intercession began when he entered heaven. The high priests on earth followed the law. They followed the sacrifices prescribed in the law to be given in the temple. Jesus was our sacrifice. He ministers for us in heaven. Now, speaking of the priests on earth, verse 5 says this. It says, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the, watch, pattern shown you on the mountain. The priests of Levi could not enter into the heavenly presence of God. This only became possible through the life and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Even Jesus, if you remember, during his earthly ministry, he limited his presence to the outer courts of the temple when he was in Jerusalem. He didn't go into the Holy of Holies. Because under the law, under the first covenant, Jesus had no priestly rights. He had no priestly responsibilities. And his sacrifice was different than the Levitical priests. And he served in the heavens, not in the temple built by men. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus Christ, he accomplished what the sacrifices of the Old Testament priests could only foreshadow on the day of atonement. His entrance into the heavenly sanctuary demonstrates that as a high priest, Jesus is greater than the high priests of Israel. Now pay attention to the wording with me, if you would, in verse 5. The Levitical priests served as a copy of the heavenly priests. The same was true of the tabernacle. 
Exodus 25 tells us that Moses was shown a pattern on Mount Sinai of the true tabernacle that is in heaven itself. You know, Plato used to talk about this kind of thing. Plato used to tell people, imagine that you're in a cave chained to a wall wearing blinders so that you can only see the wall that is right in front of you. And people are walking above you and their shadows are being reflected down, down onto that wall. And this goes on for years. This goes on for year after year after year. But after a while, as you look at this wall all the time, what becomes comes the reality, you'd begin to think of the people as the shadows on the wall, because that is what you have come to know as the real thing. This has been the point in Hebrews, that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And Paul told the church this over in Colossians 2, that the Old Testament regulations of diet or days of worship were a shadow of things to come, but the substance is what? Is of Christ. And that is what Hebrews is telling us, that the Levitical sacrificial system was a pattern of the heavenly reality which centers on Jesus Christ. The Mosaic system, the Mosaic covenant and the Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, it was always meant to be temporary because the day was coming where it would give way to the reality of Christ. The earthly tabernacle would give way to the heavenly and earthly priesthood would give way to the heavenly one. So back in Hebrews, notice the wording is that Moses was told to make all things according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Pattern, the word for pattern is actually where we get the word type from. A type in the Bible, if you're studying the Bible and you read about a type, a type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. The New Testament tells us when we run into one of these types in the Bible. You see, the priests serving in the temple were serving in a sanctuary that was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. This is the pattern that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. Moses commanded that the earthly tabernacle be built as a representation of the heavenly sanctuary that he saw when on the mountain. Now, the earthly temple is only a representation of the heavenly. And so if you were a Hebrew believer tempted to go back to the worship of the temple, this was a strong argument here for staying faithful to Jesus Christ. Because the earthly priesthood, the earthly tabernacle seemed so impressive. It was huge, but it was only a mere copy of the temple that was in heaven. So why would you go back to worshiping with priests, serving in a sanctuary built by men, when you could have direct access to God, direct fellowship with Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary itself? Harriet Jacobs wrote these words about her years as a slave. Listen to what she said. She said, only by experience can anyone realize how deep and foul is that pit of abominations referring to slavery. Harriet herself was born in 1813 in North Carolina. And for the first six years of her life, she lived a very, very comfortable life in a comfortable home with her parents and her brother. She didn't even realize for the first six years of her life that she was a slave. But when her mother died, she realized something real quick. She realized she wasn't free. 
And when she was just 15 years old, her new owner pursued her and harassed her. So seeking to protect herself, she turned to a white, unmarried lawyer, giving him two children. But her owner sent her away to work on a plantation as a field hand. But she didn't want her children to become plantation slaves. So she ran away and made it to her grandmother's home. For the next seven years of her life, Harriet actually lived in a tiny cubbyhole under the roof of the front porch. Now, this little itty-bitty space was only nine feet by seven feet with a sloping ceiling that was only three feet high at one end. She shared this little hiding place with rats and mice. And during this time, she actually wrote to her owner asking him, begging him to sell her her own children. And he refused now, eventually, the father of the children bought them, allowing the children to stay with Harriet's grandmother. But her life was in constant danger because she had run away. So she even had to hide from her own children. And so what she would do, she, she couldn't let them know that she was there. So she would squint through this tiny little peephole, hoping to catch a glimpse of them playing outside. And then in 1842, she escaped to the north. And two years later, her children joined her. But she was in constant danger of being returned to slavery and sent back to the south. Her complete liberation did not come until Harriet was 40 years old when her employer bought her freedom for $300. Now, Harriet Jacobs she knew about slavery. She knew about fear. She knew about brutality. She experienced the pain of a family being torn apart, the indignity of being sold as nothing but property. And she wrote about her life experiences. And in 1861, the very year that the Civil War began, her book, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, was first published. And Harriet concluded her book with these words, and I want you to hear them. She said, reader, my story, it ends with freedom. And that is the message that we are seeing in Hebrews. This is the same message that is being told to us in Hebrews chapter 8, that for the Hebrew people, their story ends in freedom because the law had passed away and freedom in Christ was now theirs. Watch this text in starting in verses 6 and 7. He says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, in order to wrestle with the teaching of Hebrews 8, you need to understand the covenants of God with Israel. And here is where we're going to take a deeper dive this morning. There are two types of covenants in the Old Testament. There is a conditional covenant where God told Israel, if you do this, I will bless you. But if Israel disobeyed, God would chasten them. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant given to Israel at Mount Sinai. A conditional covenant. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. And if they didn't, God would discipline them. Conditional, because it was based on man's obedience. 
It was also a temporary covenant for Israel, never intended to be permanent. God never intended the law to be permanent. And it came to an end when Jesus Christ died and the temple veil was torn in two. Now, right now, the church is living in the age of grace. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. If you have that in your head, get it out of your head. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. And the other type of covenant that God made with Israel was an unconditional covenant. Now, this type of covenant is not God stating that if the people followed him, they would be blessed. This was an unconditional statement of God telling the people, this is what he is going to do. An unconditional covenant based on the faithfulness and integrity of a sovereign God himself. And these were all made not with the church, but with the nation of Israel. And the very first of these made with Abraham long before the laws of Moses is found in Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. And if you look closely in Genesis 12 at the Abrahamic covenant, what you find is that God promised Abraham and his physical descendants three things. He promised, God promised his people land. God promised Abraham a great number of descendants, that God would one day bless his people and all the world through them. And third, God promised that he would make his people a great nation. But then what happens as you march forward through the Old Testament? Then as you move forward in the scriptures, you find three more unconditional covenants given to Israel, not the church. He gave these to Israel. And they further describe the covenant of God made with Abraham in Genesis 12. He gave them an unconditional land covenant. You will find this in Genesis 15. He gave them more information about the land that God had promised to Abraham. He gave them the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 16, because a great nation needs a great king. And then in Jeremiah 31, he promised the new covenant, giving more information about the promised blessings. Now, none of these unconditional covenants have been fulfilled. None of them. Israel has not yet received the full boundaries of her land that has been promised to her by God. The messianic Davidic king has yet to take the throne and the new covenant has yet to be fulfilled. But God is not done with the nation of Israel. At the second coming of Christ, after the tribulation, Christ is going to establish his kingdom. And when he does all three of these, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, which make up the Abrahamic covenant, they will be perfectly fulfilled in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The new covenant and the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, are all related to the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was unrelated. It came after the Abrahamic covenant, and it had a different purpose. And the Mosaic covenant was how God interacted with the nation of Israel, how they could worship him before the age of the church. And since it was separate, God could bring the temporary Mosaic covenant to an end at the death of Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't impact anything that he had already promised to Abraham. So in Hebrews chapter 8, we are centered on two of these covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant that has passed away, and we are centered on the new covenant. And when you think of the new covenant, first you need to think of Jeremiah 31. 
Now, God did not make the new covenant with Israel in Jeremiah 31. That's important to note. He promised it. That's all he did in Jeremiah 31. He promised it. The author of Hebrews actually quotes Jeremiah 31 quite a bit here. Down in verse 8, let's skip down with me. And notice what it says. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. But when did it become ratified? When did the Lord actually make the new covenant? At the Last Supper, as we saw in Hebrews 7.22, that the new covenant was the Lord's last will and testament. And that is why in Luke 22.20, we see the words of the Lord. It says, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the, what? New covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Promised in Jeremiah 31 to Israel and Judah, given or ratified at the Last Supper, which is a part of what we are doing at the Lord's table when we celebrate communion, looking back and remembering what the Lord did for his people, but also looking forward to the day when the new covenant will be fulfilled. When? When will it be fulfilled? When Christ returns to earth to finalize the blessings of the new covenant promised to Israel. And this is why in Romans 11, Paul, speaking of this time, when the Messiah comes out of the heavenly Jerusalem at his second coming, Paul said, starting in verse 26, and so all Israel, notice this passage, will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this, what does it say? Is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, the reference to the covenant is the fulfillment of the new covenant for Israel when Christ returns again at the second coming. The context is all about, in Romans 11, God restoring Israel at the second coming. And the text from Romans actually proves that the new covenant is for Israel in the future because Paul quoted the new covenant passage of Jeremiah 31 and tied it right to the new covenant. So where does the church fit in? Where does the church fit in? How does the church relate to the new covenant? Well, we're going to get to that in just a bit. So let's look at this back in verse 6 in Hebrews. Back to verse 6 in Hebrews. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus is better than any Old Testament priest serving under the old covenant because Jesus is the one who established this better covenant, the new covenant through the shedding of his blood. His resurrection life and his position of interceding for us before the Father in heaven can give us as believers in Jesus Christ assurance and confidence that Christ will fulfill everything that was promised to him by the Father and everything that's been promised to us in his word. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant established on better promises And scripture tells us in Galatians 3 that God used Moses as a mediator to usher in the Mosaic covenant. Now, do you remember why? Do you remember why he had to use Moses? You see, Exodus 20 tells us that the people of Israel were so scared, they were so alarmed and frightened at Mount Sinai that they begged Moses to speak with them because it was so terrifying to hear God speak. 
But this fear of God, it did not last long because the people, they quickly disobeyed the laws of God that they had so promised to keep. And God used the Son, the Messiah, to ratify the new covenant. Paul added, do you remember these words? He said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, if the Mosaic covenant was without fault, there would have been no need for God to promise the new covenant. But the new covenant was established on better promises because the Mosaic covenant was conditional. It was based on the obedience of man in order to be fulfilled. But the new covenant, and here's what's so beautiful about this teaching, it is founded upon the faithfulness and integrity of God's word. And his people, Israel, will receive the blessings of the new covenant simply by grace. This was the very fault under the Mosaic covenant because it depended on the obedience of man for the blessings that could come if Israel obeyed. And that was the problem. It's not that the law had flaws, but the men trying to live underneath it, oh, they did. They had their flaws. You see, the law of God, it did exactly what it was intended to do. It revealed sin, but it couldn't remove it. The problem was with the people who lacked the power to obey God's law. The blessings for Israel would come by the new covenant. The blessings for Israel will come solely based on God's grace, which is why there was a need for a second covenant. And I do not want you to miss this, that for the nation of Israel, the new covenant was a replacement of the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai. Take verse eight in our text. He says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this is an unconditional covenant. So I want you to watch in your Bibles how many times you see in these verses that God affirms what he will do. Six times in the rest of the chapter, God says, I will, I will, I will. God gave the promise of a new covenant because the people of Israel had failed him. The law did what it was intended to do, but God found fault with the people because they disobeyed it continuously for 900 years. You see, they rebelled against God during the time of Moses and Joshua. They rebelled against God during the time of the judges, the United Kingdom under Saul, David and Solomon. They rebelled during the divided kingdom. And again, when it was just Judah, the better covenant that is referred to was announced by the prophet Jeremiah. The promise was given that assured the Jews of a future restoration. Jeremiah As we've seen in Sunday school, he was ministering during the closing years of the nation's history before Judah went into Babylonian captivity. At a time when the nation's future seemed completely destroyed, God gave the promise of restoration. Israel had failed in keeping the Mosaic covenant. And so Jeremiah, he announced that the people would be deported from the promised land, but they were reaping the penalty of disobedience to God's covenant. So notice in verse 8, as the writer is pulling this directly from Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, again, it was not established in the time of Jeremiah. It was only predicted. 
The days coming here in the text, looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah. And second, we notice that the covenant was made with the entire nation of Israel. It wasn't just the northern tribes of Israel. It wasn't just the southern tribes of Judah. It was made with the entire nation of Israel. And verse 9, it tells us that this covenant was different from the Mosaic covenant. It says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. The problem was that the people of Israel continued to disobey God's covenant. The old Mosaic covenant, it didn't have the power to enable the people to remain faithful to God. But the new covenant is not about a list of rules. It's about the presence and the power of God living within the believer. And that is why verse 10 teaches this. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I want you to listen closely to this because this is an important truth that you need to understand for your walk in Christ right now. For the believer in Jesus Christ, your position is secure. Your position, your eternal redemption in Christ is secure. Your salvation is secure. And the Holy Spirit of God stands ready to help every single believer in Christ grow. He enables us to grow in our condition, how we live out our lives. Our daily condition, how we live, the Holy Spirit stands ready to empower believers to live for Christ. But you see what this is saying, what this is teaching is that the day is coming, that when the new covenant is fulfilled, when God's people of Israel will not just have their position secure in Christ, but their condition secure in Christ too. Because why? Because these sin natures that we have, will be done away with. Meaning the new covenant is based upon God's determined purpose to change a person's spiritual position and condition. And notice what it says. The new covenant will be inscribed within his people. It's not just going to be written on stones. It's going to be within his people. The moral absolutes for Israel were written upon two tablets of stone, but God promised for them, and I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. God promised Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the new covenant, it's going to produce something beautiful. It's going to be an internal living relationship between God and his people. And the performance of this covenant is all on God. It is his power. It is his purpose. It is all what God will do within man. The entire lives of his people will be impacted by his presence. His people will enjoy a privileged and unique relationship with God, and they shall know him directly. Verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
You see, now, the picture that's being painted here in Scripture for us is that when Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, every one of His people will know Him directly. God will put His Spirit within His people. God will directly instruct His people. I'm going to be out of a job, praise God. Isaiah also writes of this time during the millennium when he tells us in Isaiah 54 that in Jerusalem all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. You see, there's going to be a universal knowledge of God. And the author of Hebrews tells us one more thing back in chapter 8 about the new covenant. He tells us that God's people will experience the permanent forgiveness of sins. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now, God is merciful. There's no doubt about that. And the reason God can be merciful towards sinners is because the death of Jesus has satisfied the righteous demands of a holy God. God promised regarding the new covenant, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Praise God. It is not that God will just suddenly forget like he's having Alzheimer's or memory problems. That's not the idea here. But the meaning is that God won't hold our sins against us anymore. Our sin is forgiven. It is never brought up before us again. It is settled forever secure. It is a covenant based on the full and final solution of sin made possible at Calvary. Now, the new covenant for Israel has not been fulfilled. It awaits the second coming of Christ. And of this promise found in Jeremiah, Isaiah and Ezekiel also describe a people who have the law written on their hearts, who walk in the way of the Lord fully under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now these same promises look to a people in Ezekiel 37 who are raised from the dead in the valley of dry bones. And they will enjoy the blessings of an eternal inheritance with God when he lives with them and in them forever. So where does the church fit in? If the new covenant is not yet fulfilled, where does the church fit in? Some say today that it's a partial fulfillment. I don't believe it is because to say it is would be misunderstanding of what God refers to as a partial fulfillment of Scripture. I think it's better to understand it this way, that we share the same mediator, we share the same savior, we share the same priest, the same king. And so we and the church today stand blessed, blessed because we serve a God who is working out a plan amongst the nations, blessed because God has a future for Israel and blessed because God has a future for the church. But the similarity we experience in Jesus Christ does not mean that we can claim a promise that was given to the nation of Israel. The new covenant was not made with us, but we are benefiting, benefiting from the work of the cross because the shed blood on Calvary was the sacrifice that was needed for the promised new covenant. The blood of Christ was shed for the remission of sins. And this affects us. This impacts us, even though the covenant is not with the church. See, we are benefiting, benefiting from the forgiveness of sins and the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. But understand this, the work that God is going to do one day with Israel is so much more and so much more distinct from what he was doing in the church now. The church has no part in the land covenant 
of Israel. The church will not establish the nation of Israel in Christ's kingdom. And the present ministry of the Holy Spirit is only a small, small glimpse of what is to come. Because on that day, the people of Israel will be circumcised of the heart. The Spirit of God will be their source of obedience to Jesus Christ. And it will be the grace of God that enables and empowers His people to be righteous. And if the new covenant was fulfilled now in the church, then every one of us, every believer in this room would be walking in perfect obedience. But that day is coming for Israel. The Mosaic law was for the nation of Israel. It is to be replaced by the new covenant for Israel. Verse 13, our final verse. It says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There's an amazing prophecy here in these words. You see, the Mosaic covenant was obsolete when the author wrote this, and it was growing old and ready to vanish away. It had done its job, and it had served the purpose that God already had for it. Jeremiah had announced 600 years before this that a new covenant was coming and that the old covenant would be done away with. Obsolete because they were still going through those motions in the temple. They were still doing it. But the Mosaic law had been done away with at the death of Christ when that temple veil torn in two. You see, the Mosaic system was just about to vanish away. And that is pretty much exactly what happened in, in history. Just a few years later in 70 AD, when the Romans came along and destroyed the temple, ending the sacrifices and scattering the Jews throughout the known world, no temple has stood there since. And they were told this all the way back. It's not like God doesn't warn his people. They were told this all the way back in the words of the prophet Hosea. Because in Hosea 3, 4, we read this. It says, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. You see, for a long time, it was predicted that they wouldn't have a king. They wouldn't have any sacrifices. They wouldn't have any of the things that marked them as God's people. And they wouldn't even have the things they had used to worship their idols. But notice verse 5 of that same text in Hosea 3. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in what? The latter days. See, the people of Israel will inherit the full boundaries of their land. They will fully return to the land at the second coming of Jesus Christ. They will receive the land because of this land covenant. They will seek the Lord their God and fear the Lord because of the new covenant promise that God will circumcise the hearts of his people and the spirit of God will be their source of their obedience to Christ. And the people will once again have a king because of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that would happen in the last days when Israel is restored and the millennial reign of our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us in this room have probably never taken part in a watch night service. It takes place on New Year's Eve. And they actually first started with groups like the Moravians in the 1700s. And then John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, he brought them over to America because of all the drunken madness that took place back in that day on New Year's Eve. He was trying to give Christians something better to do. So they spent time with God in prayer, looking back to the year before and their walk with God. 
But in the 1800s, these, these took on a new meaning because the African-American churches developed another tradition and it was known as Freedom's Eve. Because the Emancipation Proclamation was promised by President Lincoln in 1862, and it was to take effect on January 1st of 1863. And so what the African-American Christians did was they gathered in homes and they gathered in churches waiting and waiting and waiting for the news that the Emancipation Proclamation had become law waiting for the confirmation that when the clock struck midnight on January 1st, 1863, that every slave in the Confederacy was liberated by President Lincoln, keeping his word of this declaration of freedom. Now, on that first watch night, people waited for word through the telegraph, through word of mouth, that freedom had been finally granted. But when the news of freedom was received later that day, do you know what they did? There were prayers, there were shouts, and there were songs of joy as people fell to their knees and thanked God. Freedom, freedom is powerful. The church of Jesus Christ is not under the Mosaic law, and we're actually not a part of the new covenant. But you see, every person in this room knows what it is to be enslaved to sin, don't we? And everyone in this room knows what it looks like when legalistic men force their enslavement to rules upon others. The freedom we have because of the Savior is real. And it should cause us to get down on our knees and thank God for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to worship. It should cause us to pray and to live each day in Him for His glory. Thank God for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. His grace accomplishes in us what the tablets of the law could never do. And the more that you and I depend on His Spirit working in us, the more we reflect our Savior, giving Him the glory, the honor, and the praise that He alone deserves. See, even when we stumble, even when we fall, we know that God as our Father is always ready, ready to restore His people to a walk with Him. Let this understanding of God's plan for his people build in you a secure trust, a steady confidence in the promises of God, that for his people, a better future and a better hope lies ahead. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.